What hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? That's a question that was famously asked by the church father Tertullian, although in its context it wasn't really so much an earnest question as it was a way of making a rhetorical point. Because what Tertullian was asking is this, what is the relationship between Christian faith and pagan philosophy? And for Tertullian, the answer was obvious, none. Christian faith and pagan philosophy are not friends, but foes. Here's how he himself so memorably put it. What does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? The church with the academy, the Christian with the heretic. I have no use for a Stoic or a Platonic or an Aristotelian Christianity. After Jesus Christ, we have no need of speculation. After the gospel, no need of research. Tertullian's antagonistic attitude toward pagan learning is understandable, and he seems to have pretty good biblical basis for it. After all, doesn't St. Paul himself warn us about philosophy in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And I think for many of us, this is confirmed by our experience. How often do we see Christians being deceived and misled by secular ideas and ideologies? Tertullian had good reason to be suspicious of pagan philosophy. And he wasn't alone. In the 13th century, when modern universities were first beginning to take shape, there was a fierce debate that took place over the teaching of Aristotelian philosophy in these universities, a debate which lasted for decades and culminated in the condemnation of a long list of philosophical doctrines, a condemnation by the Bishop of Paris and later the Archbishop of Canterbury, who banned the teaching of these Aristotelian philosophy at the universities of Paris and Oxford. And you can see this same dynamic more recently in United States Christianity. Fundamentalists and evangelical Christians have long been suspicious of the ideas coming out of secular universities. And throughout much of the 20th century, this suspicion evolved into an out-and-out -out distrust and rejection, not just of the universities, but of intellectualism as a whole. Now, the Christian historian Mark Knoll has described this anti-intellectual movement as the scandal of the evangelical mind. But not all Christians have taken this approach, and nor have all agreed with Tertullian's harsh judgment on pagan philosophy. In fact, there were other church fathers, such as Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Augustine of Hippo, Basil of Caesarea, important church fathers who not only studied Greek and Roman philosophy, but used it regularly in their own thinking and teaching. And just as Tertullian might have appealed to the Apostle Paul to justify his rejection of philosophy, so these church fathers too, they also appealed to Paul for support of their engagement with pagan learning. In particular, they appealed to the example set by Paul in the story that Luke tells in Acts chapter 17, 
when Paul visits the city of Athens and speaks in the Areopagus. This, this story is one of the most famous scenes in the entire book. And still to this day, if you go to, to Mars Hill, which is the Latin term for the Areopagus, if you go to the Areopagus in Athens, where Paul spoke, you can see a plaque where the words of his speech in Greek are engraved upon it. But why did Paul's speech make such an impact? And what does it say to us about the way that we engage the ideas and attitudes present in our own culture today? In order to understand what is going on with Paul's speech, we need to pay attention to two things. First, how does Paul evaluate the Athenians? What's Paul's opinion of what he finds in Athens? And then second, how does Paul adapt his gospel message for them and speak it in a way that they can understand? Now, Luke gives us an important piece of information when he tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, here with this verse, Luke is giving us an insight into Paul's inner emotional state as he looks around in Athens. Luke tells us that Paul is provoked. But what does that mean? Uh, provoked is kind of an ambiguous word. Does this mean that Paul felt angry? that he felt compassion, that he was shocked, that he was annoyed. The Greek word that Luke uses here, paraxuno, it's a, it's a strong, it's a word that has a kind of strong, negative, emotional connotation to it. Maybe it could be anger or sorrow or frustration. As the New Testament scholar Kevin Rowe puts it, whether one translates this word as vexed, provoked or exasperated, the general sense is clear. Paul is not moved by the city's rich philosophical or cultural heritage. He is rather deeply distressed by what he sees in Athens. So that's one clue to Paul's evaluation of what he finds in Athens. Luke tells us that he is deeply distressed. Another clue is uh, the opening words of the speech that Paul gives to the crowd who are assembled at the Areopagus when he begins to speak. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, again, it's not immediately clear from this statement what Paul means. Is he giving them a compliment or is he making a criticism? And the best answer to that question seems to be, well, he's doing both. And this really goes to show Paul's skill as a rhetorician, as a speaker. You see, one of the techniques of ancient rhetoric is something that uh, the Latin phrase for it is captatio benevolentiae, but really it just means fishing for goodwill, to capture the goodwill of an audience. It describes the practice of an orator to begin his speech in a way that will win over the goodwill of his audience. And this is what Paul is doing here. Uh, the Athenians, no doubt, hear Paul's words as praise for their wondrous piety. But this word that Paul uses when he describes them as very religious, this same word is used sometimes by Greek philosophers to talk about popular religion as being overly superstitious. 
So while the Athenians can hear Paul's comment as praise, the readers of Acts who read his speech and already know what Paul thinks about Greek religion, they hear it more in line with how those Greek philosophers used it. Paul's not impressed with the religion of Athens. He thinks it's ignorant and idolatrous and superstitious. But Paul is a very skilled speaker who wants to win over his audience. So that's what Paul thinks of the great cultural city of Athens when he comes to it. He is distressed. He is provoked. He finds it to be a place of superstition and idolatry. So what does he say then? How does Paul adapt his presentation of the gospel to them? Well, you may remember several sessions ago that we discussed Paul's sermon at Pisidian Antioch. And like Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, I pointed out that there in Antioch, Paul talks about Jesus with reference to the Old Testament and how he talks about the good news of justification by faith. But remember, that sermon was given to a group of Jews in a synagogue. Now, Paul faces a very different audience. And so he changes and adapts his message in very interesting ways. The first thing to note is it's clear that Paul has done his homework. He has not just observed casually Athens, he has studied Athenian culture and religious behavior. Here's what he says in verse 23. As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So not only is Paul going around kind of doing a, a sort of demographic and cultural analysis of Athens, Paul also seems to be familiar with at least some Greek poetry and philosophy, and he draws on it in speaking to his audience. Paul quotes two lines from Greek philosopher poets, from the poet Epimenides and the Stoic philosopher poet Aratus. But it isn't just that Paul has studied the culture of his audience and that he can quote from their own literature. He also uses this as a starting point to engage with them. Let me explain to you who this unknown God is that you are seeking, is what he's telling them. And if you don't believe me, don't your own philosophers say as much? Now it's interesting, Paul does not once cite scripture in this speech, which is a pretty remarkable departure from what he says in places like Pisidian Antioch and from how he speaks to Christians later in his letters. But it makes sense here, the sources that he's drawing from. What's interesting though is although Paul is obviously drawing on Greek sources and he's engaging them in a way that appeals to them and appeals to Greek philosophy, Paul isn't simply trying to find total agreement with the Athenians. Paul, this is a very short speech in many ways, but it's also a very sophisticated interaction and critique of at least three different groups among the Athenians. On the one hand, Paul is speaking to the group of religious pagans, those just typical religious Greek worshipers. And his message to them seems to be, your zeal for worship is good, but your ideas of God are wrong. God isn't made of matter, nor are there a bunch of different gods. There is only one God who created the world. He's not a part of it. The Epicureans were another group, Luke tells us, that were there. And they would have agreed with Paul up to a point, 
They would agree with his criticism of popular religion, with sacrifices to idols and things like that. But the Epicureans would not at all have agreed that, that God created all of the world or that God watches over humanity and gives life to, as Paul says, all life and breath and everything. So Paul is both agreeing with the Epicureans, but he's critiquing them as well. The Stoics were another group that were there, the other philosophical group. And the fact that Paul quotes a Stoic poet, Aratus, it shows that he has perhaps the most in common with this third group, with the Stoics. They would have agreed with much of what Paul said. And Paul, it seems, is trying to kind of maximize areas of agreement to win them over. But even with the Stoics, Paul isn't simply affirming Stoicism. He ultimately undermines it. Because it's clear from what Paul says that the God he proclaims is not at all like the Stoic understanding of God. Paul's God is a very personal God who interacts with the world and his human creatures. And the conclusion to Paul's speech would be something that Epicureans and Stoics alike would have entirely rejected. Here's how Paul concludes his speech in verse 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This crowd at the Areopagus, they thought Paul was bringing just a new philosophy, some interesting philosophical ideas. But Paul's message is not so much a philosophy or some interesting ideas. Paul is bringing an announcement. Paul is telling them that there is only one God, that the, a God who does not fit well into any of your philosophies or religious ideas, and that this one true God has raised Jesus from the dead, and now he is calling you to repent. That is Paul's speech to the crowd in Athens. And it is short, but there's a lot going on there. The question is, what can we learn from this? What does it teach us as Christians, as those who are continuing the mission that Paul began? Was it, what does it teach us about how we engage culture and philosophy today? Well, I'd like to highlight three takeaways, three lessons that we can learn. And the first is this, Paul studied before he spoke. As brief as this speech is, it's clear that Paul had studied the beliefs of his audience. He knew Athenian religion and he had studied Greek philosophy. He knew their literature well enough to quote it by heart. And there's a lesson in that for us today. We live in a time when there's a lot of speech, but not as much study. And many people today, and Christians included, have a tendency to speak about things which it's clear they don't really understand. And Paul is an example for us of someone who has the virtue of studiousness. Before engaging in a debate, he does the hard work of understanding clearly the views of those he's engaging. Because, and this is the second lesson that we can draw from this, because Paul found truth in pagan philosophy. Paul found areas of agreement with pagan philosophy, especially its critique of Greek and Roman religious practices. And Paul wasn't alone. As I said, many of the church fathers studied pagan learning and they found a lot to agree with. 
So much so that some church fathers, such as Eusebius of Caesarea, argued that the philosophers like Plato must have read or been exposed to the writings of Moses because there was so much truth in them. And they referred to Greek philosophy as the preparatio evangelica, the preparation for the gospel, that which prepared the Gentiles to hear the truth of the gospel was Greek philosophy. And for others, such as St. Augustine, it was actually studying pagan literature and philosophy, writers like Cicero and the Platonists, that was instrumental for Augustine in his own conversion to Christianity. Now, of course, this should not be surprising. As Paul himself says elsewhere, nature reveals truths of God. And while Paul readily will say all humans err, they do not always err. And there are elements of truth in much of secular learning and secular wisdom. Paul recognized that. And we can learn from his example and seek the truth in areas of agreement in the secular learning and ideas of our own day as a way to connect and a bridge to build with people. And the third lesson I think that we learn from Paul's time in Athens comes from the observation that Paul insisted that all human culture must submit to the Lordship of the risen Jesus Christ. But while Paul was eager to find areas of agreement with his audience. His speech was ultimately a call to repentance. Turn from your false beliefs and your ignorant practices. That's what he was telling them. And submit to the one true God who raised Jesus from the dead. If Paul were here among us today, his message would be no different. All of human life, all of human culture, from religion to ethics, philosophy, political life, all of culture is called to submit to the one true Lord. As the Dutch politician and theologian Abraham Kuyper once put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That was Paul's message to the Athenians. And that is his message to us today as well.